this has been uh, our series on the life of discipleship, and I've been focusing on the, uh, the discipleship of the body, and this particular part of this series is on the formation or discipleship of the mind. So we put this into God's hands. Everyone in this room probably knows the great commandment as given to us in the Synoptic Gospels, where Jesus says that we're called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind. What does it mean to love God with your mind? What does it mean to love God with your mind? Sometimes in our tradition, uh, and this is the, uh, the part of the tradition that we have to be sorry about, there's a part of our tradition which at times has made formation solely a matter of the heart and the affections of the inner life. And sometimes we talk as if the mind is an impediment to heart affections. Perhaps the heart, the mind might be a barrier to really a flourishing Christian life, and even in some cases, the mind is portrayed as the fountainhead of, of doubt. So what does it mean to love God with your mind? First Peter, the text which read so beautifully uh, by Alan, verse 13 says, open, the opening line is, prepare your minds for action. What does it mean to prepare your mind for action? And I want to say, with all deference to the NRSV, uh, that is, is a fine translation, but it's kind of a safe translation. Uh, it's, a, it's a very you know, solid translation, but it is uh, somewhat domesticated because that translation, as beautiful as it is, it does tend to separate the actual text from its Old Testament roots out of which Peter wrote and what he actually said. So it's helpful in times like this as a future pastor or leader for you to look under the hood and actually see what did Peter actually say in his actual letter to those who received it. And what he actually said in that opening phrase of verse 13 of chapter 1, he didn't say exactly, prepare your minds for action. What he actually said, and I quote you the literal verse here, gird up the loins of your mind. Now how about that for a hallelujah? Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, the doctrine of loins is one a bit far-fetched for us, but it's a very rich and nuanced doctrine in the Old Testament. Don't have an amen, Bill Arnold. Now, the, the New Testament uh, used the word loins eight times, actually very, all eight, very significant. And the Old Testament, of course, provides the kind of semantic and, and doctrinal playing field and semantic words of which the New Testament takes and uses to present the gospel. So it's very important to remember this. So if you go back to the, and look at what well, the eight times in the New Testament, NRSV, for example, translate the word osphus, which is loins, eight, four different words to translate that one particular word in the Greek. So it kind of obscures this doctrine from a, a, a reader of the New Testament in English, and you lose this great doctrine of the Old Testament loins. So we want to go back and recover this a little bit and go back and look. Now, we have no way we have time to explore this doctrine in the Old Testament full, but what we do find, if you look at all of these texts, they generally fall into four categories, and amazingly, all four of these are important for understanding what Peter meant when he said, gird the loins of your mind. 
The first category uh, comes, what I would call, the, is a symbol of alert readiness. And this, the best example of this is, is actually the text in Exodus 12, verse 11. In that passage, we're there at the Passover, and we're giving instructions on how they're to be ready for the Passover. And it's a bit surprising, because if we think about mealtime, especially an evening meal, you go home, you relax, Sometimes you take your clothes off. I never eat, despite what people made the rumors, I never eat supper in this suit. I promise you. My kids think I was born with a tie on, but it's not true. I actually go home and change clothes and loosen my belt and relax, and I eat supper every night. That's how most people do, and they did in the ancient world. Exodus says, no, no, don't do that. You eat the Passover, and they want you to have your sandals on your feet, they were supposed to have their, their staff in their hand, and they were to gird their loins, they gird their belt tightly. And the text actually commanded to eat it hurriedly. The point is, they were meant to be on the ready. They were about to be freed into their whole new life together from Egypt. They had to be on the ready. This is a symbol of being alert and ready. And then Jesus takes the loin language. Again, it's lost in so many New Testament translations, but he takes the loin language in Luke 12, 35. It talks about the, um, the servant who's waiting for his master after the banquet, right? And he, we're told Jesus compares that to a servant waiting for his return, the, the return of Christ. And he actually tells them, the NRSC says, be dressed for action. But it says, gird your loins for action. We are to have our belt tight, mean we are on the alert. We are ready. Our minds are being prepared and alert for what God would call us to go into. The second image comes uh, from the prophet uh, Elijah, I call this a symbol of prophetic, the prophetic mantle. Now, if you think about Elijah in 1 Kings 18, for example, he's presented as a kind of a wild man, right? And he's got this kind of wild look. And there's a wonderful text in 1 Kings 18 where he, we're told he girded up his loins so he'd outrun Ahab the Jezreel. Now, that's a great visual image. You see the picture there of him outrunning Ahab in the lower picture there. But in the New Testament, when you get to the, to the Gospels, John, is, they go to him like a little bit of surprising detail into his clothing. Like, oh, John wearing, you know, camel hair, and, you know, he's eating locusts and wild honey, which is like basically eating grasshoppers. It's really interesting. But he has this, he's, his belt, he has this girded belt on. It's not because the New Testament is particularly interested in his clothing, but they want you to make the connection to Elijah which, of course, Jesus says point blank, Matthew eleven fourteen, 14, he is the Elijah to come. The point, they want you to understand that John bringing the word of God was not something that was like a casual event. This is not like, you know, lazy boy Christianity, beanbag, you know, you, know, you come into church with your, you know, your hat on and your got your Starbucks coffee, and the whole thing is portraying this is a casual event. But in fact, the Bible wants you to understand that your mind is girded. This is serious business, portraying the prophetic word of God to a lost generation. Amen? There's a prophetic calling upon us to deliver the word of God to a dying generation. This is not a casual event. This is a serious event. 
The third uh, symbol that comes to us is the symbol from the Old Testament of what I would call the generative power idea. This is very amazing. Uh, David, for example, is told that not simply that his son would, uh, that's how some translation, the son within you will build the temple, but he says the one who will come from your loins. And the idea is that inside of you, there is all of this generative power which produces life. It's a big part of the theology of the body, actually. So what happens is this idea that your ancestors are in your loins gets brought into the New Testament. You'll know, of course, twice in Hebrews uh, 7, 5, and 7, 10, it talks about how Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, right? And the whole point of that passage, which is a kind of a cryptic passage, but just point out how to reconcile that Christ is both king and priest. Melchizedek was king and priest. And Abraham, by tithing to Melchizedek, was also Levi tithing to Melchizedek, which meant that he was saying that Levi was still in the loins of Abraham, even though it was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi. It's a long way away, but he was in his loins. Now, what this means for us is that we are part of a very powerful generative force called the people of God. Now, you may personally, our stories are all different here in this room, but you may come from a family where you're the only believer. I hear this a lot from our students. They tell me, I grew up in a Christian family, many of you did, but a lot of our students will tell me, I'm the only Christian in my family, or I'm the only Christian among my siblings. And some of you may feel alone in that, or maybe you, you just don't know how you fit into that. But in fact, when you become a Christian, you step into that sacred space called the people of God, and all the ancestors of God's people are now your ancestors. And you are now part of that generative power which is going to bring that forth in proclaiming the gospel and extend that to yet others who come after you as you're faithful to the Word of God. We are in this great, and that's why whenever we have this like, you know, progressive theology, we call it, you know, it always dies out, or the church always dies under it. Why? Because what is powerful and generative is not us and our words. There's plenty of people out there with great eloquence in churches that are dying because they don't have the connection to this generative power of the Word of God. That's what gives life to the church. The fourth uh, uh, illustration there is the symbol of the coming Messiah. And this is where, amazingly, the Old, New Testament, Old Testament already starts pushing us towards interpreting the, the loins idea, the belt around your waist, in symbolic ways. So you have in Messiah, the Isaiah 11:5, for example, it says, the, pro, the coming Messiah, righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. Now, it's drawn upon this imagery that the Messiah has a belt, but not just a leather belt like we might wear, but a belt of righteousness, a belt of truthfulness, a belt of his authority. It's about, again, the amazing sense that the Messiah will come girded with this spiritual belt. Well, you all know, of course, that this is exactly what Paul draws upon in Ephesians chapter 6. When Paul lays out all the wonderful pieces of the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, all these wonderful things, the feet shod with the gospel of peace. But what is the first piece of armor that he gives to us in Ephesians 6.14? The first piece is the belt of truth. Gird, it actually said, once again, Osphus, 
Gird yourselves. Gird your loins with the gospel of truth. We call it putting on the belt of truth. But it's something deep inside of you is committed to the word of God. This is that belt. This is your first piece of armor, the word of God. And if we as Asbarians are going to have any hope uh, to address this broken world, it's with the word of God. And we want to be, you're here to be girded by that. We have this amazing faculty, I think the most amazing faculty ever assembled, who have dedicated themselves to the formation of your mind, that you might be equipped and ready, mentally alert, that prophetic word, this generation, that coming to grips with the mighty stream of people who have also brought this word to history and that belt of truth which they teach you in season in and out. When I was in India, I think it was in our, I'm sorry to say, our 12th year of training pastors and church planters that we ask ourselves, I wonder how they're doing. <laughs> I wonder if we're being effective in our training. And so I used to spend a lot of time out in the field meeting with our church planting graduates all across North India. And so I decided to do a survey. We had at that time about 500 church planting people we trained. And so I did a survey with all of them. And I said, would you please just do a simple response to me? Tell me, here you are working in front lines with Hindus who have no knowledge of the gospel. What are the top three questions that they ask you when you go into a village to preach the gospel? I'd just like to know, what, what would a Hindu say to you? I got hundreds and hundreds of responses from that. So I spent time compiling all of these into a little book. And the book is called, uh, this is the book, it's called Apki Sabal Hamari Javab, means your questions, our answers. These were, these are, I basically brought it down to the top 15 questions that Hindus ask uh, church planters in North India. And you can see the name Premrat Dharmananda, uh, that's my pen name in India, it's actually me. Anyway, what amazed me when I went back to our seminary, I asked the question, if you went through our entire program and you had what we would call here in the West a 4.0 average, would you be prepared to answer those 15 questions? The answer was, not really. Not really. We prepared people for years to for answer the questions that we thought they should know, <laughs> that were important to me. In my work here in the U.S. and everywhere else, we never really thought about the fact that the Hindus might have some different questions that we never thought of. We spent a long time going through, thinking through every one of these top 15 questions. And it was a lot of thought involved. And God called us to think about it. And therefore, we changed our curriculum that we might be able to address the actual needs of actual Hindus who actually met our church planners. Are we prepared to go out and actually talk to people in this culture that don't have a clue about the gospel? We're not here to condemn the world. We're here to love them. We're here to win them to God, the gospel and share the good news with them. And so we need to know what they're asking, their questions. I think really in some ways we're at a Kairos moment that goes back to our very uh, history as a seminary. Because if you go back to our founding uh, in 1923, Henry Clay Morrison, there he is in a camp meeting on the right. 
Hinoque Morrison was probably the greatest orator of his time. And in his ministry, he conducted over 1,200 revival services around the world. He preached over 15,000 sermons. Now, if you don't quite capture that, I keep track of how many sermons I preach, and I have preached 1,355 sermons. And if I get through today, I'll be 1,356. Now, that's a long way to 15,000. If you do a little math, you'll know if you're a pastor and you preach for 40 years and you preach 50 sermons a year, we give you two weeks vacation, you preach 50 sermons a year, and you, for 40 years you will preach 2,000 sermons. Okay? I'm not there yet. I'm going to get to 2,000 before I die. I'm going to have to preach Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I'm going to get there. But the point is, Henry Clay Morris preached 15,000 sermons. This is a guy who believed in preaching. He believed in revival services. His whole life was dedicated to that. And yet, in 1923, a revival preacher, a camp meeting preacher, crossed the street and started, this, started a seminary. And even said in April of 1923, before we started in September of 23, he said, there's no greater need in the world today than a theological seminary. Now, why would a camp meeting preacher who is on his way to 15,000 sermons start a seminary? Well, the reason was because this the day that he lived. He was living, and every, every generation is called something different. We call it today, you know, I think, progressive theology, and it was once called, a while back, deconstructionist theology. And in those days, it was called the modernist controversy. And so all across the country, the seminaries were falling to modernist teachings, revisionist teachings, and people thought, frankly, people just can't really believe in things like the bodily resurrection of Christ or the virgin birth. That's just for people who didn't know better. We now know better. And it began to infiltrate the seminaries. And in the Methodist world, it started, unfortunately, at Boston University was the first to fall. And then it pop, 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 pop went through. And eventually, by the time of H.C. Morris, not a single, if you were a Wesleyan Methodist Christian, was not a single seminary to attend that was orthodox. Now, that was fueled in part, part of this was fueled by uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick. He preached a sermon in New York City, which was obviously a very important uh, sermon, uh, a very important church, but his sermon was called, What is Christianity? And Harry Fosdick's sermon was essentially, the gist of it was, Christianity is about the moral, ethical teachings of Christ, and we need to shed, you know, go back to the Jeffersonian Bible, you know, shed all the miraculous kind of... Uh, things like body resurrection, virgin birth, all of that, and let's just get into the teachings of Christ and make the church a social movement to transform this country. Now, John D. Rockefeller, who at that time was the richest man in the world, and some people say even by uh, you know, inflation, he may have been richer than people like you know, Gates or Bezos, those people like that even today. He was the founder of Standard Oil Company. He was so impressed by this sermon he decided to put it in pamphlet form and mail it to every pastor in the entire country. And they did that. That was in 1922. By 1930, October 6th, 
uh, Time magazine uh, put him on the front cover of their magazine. He was all the rage. And Henry Clay Morrison decided in order to do that, he had to start a, to respond, to start a seminary. And hear me now, he knew that because all, he knew all, all the preaching in the world, as important as it was to him, all the revival services in the world, as important as it was, and he died doing those things, would not be able to address the challenges that the culture was facing unless people had well-formed minds to think well and respond to the controversies of that day. And so he crossed the street and started Asbury Seminary. Now, if you had been there, if you could go back in time and you could stand on Lexington Avenue in 1923 when good old H.C. Morrison crossed the street and you could have waved your hands and said, Brother Morrison, stop! Go back to Asbury College. Don't start this work. Haven't you read the Modernist Memo? Haven't you, haven't you read Fawcett's sermon? The whole church is going the other way. The whole tide of the culture is going the other way. He would have still crossed the street. You know why? Because his mind was girded for action. If you had been back in 1923 and you would have stopped Henry Clay Morrison as he crossed the street to start this ministry and start this work, and you would have said to him, Dr. Morrison, we just got through a pandemic. Remember? 1918. We're now in the roaring 20s. Everybody wants to party. The pandemic is over. Nobody wants to do theological education. Are you kidding me? Go back to Asbury College. Don't start this work. He would have marched on across the street, pushed you aside. You know why? His mind was girded for action. If you had been there that day in 1923, and you had seen that man crossing the street to this place, which is just a field, and Larry Morris was there, and he was going to start this ministry. And you said to him, I know something you don't know. It's 1923, but before this seminary can ever even get to its sixth birthday, when you're only five years old, this whole country is going to be thrown into the worst depression imaginable, the Great Depression. This is not a time to raise money, to build buildings, and to train students. He would have crossed the street anyway because his mind was girded for action. If you could have gone back to 1923 and you could have met H.C. Morrison crossing the street, Lexington Avenue, if you could have stopped him and said, by the way, it was dirt, you stopped him and said, Dr. Morrison, Reverend Morrison, go back. You're, hear this, you're 66 years old. This is not the time to start something like this. The culture is giving you permission. You can go on retirement. You can go play golf. What do people do when they turn 66? He would have laughed at you because he crossed the street because 
Say it with me now. His mind was girded for action. We need an army of H.C. Morrisons today. He faced the same exact challenges. The devil never has any new ideas. He just recycles the old one, gives them new names. It's the same challenges he was facing, and he girded himself for action. We live in a day when our faith has been privatized by the culture. Our faith has been emotivized, all about the heart. Nothing, all of truth is now socially constructed. We don't believe truth is socially constructed. We believe it's divinely revealed. And this is what God has called us to rise up. We don't have one of these, you know, when Morrison created our slogan, you know, the whole world for the whole world, he didn't have what Neil did is put a little Latin thing on there. But if he had, <laughs> Henry, are you okay with this? If he had put a Latin phrase on our motto, which we don't have, it might have been hoc scrinium ara est. Hoc scrinium ara est. Your study desk is your altar. Your desk is your altar. It's not going to class and going to chapel. It's all the nuptial embrace. That's what our faculty long for you to understand. It's all about your formation. Everything we do here is formation. Formating your mind is just as important as formation of your heart. Your desk is your altar. And so, it's amazing. A revival preacher started this seminary. I want you to know that he died in 1942. He started this at 66. He was 85 years old. His occupation was still president of Asbury Seminary. I got a long way to go to catch up to that. <laughs> he died at a camp meeting in Elizabethton, Tennessee. He preached his, what he, became his last camp meeting, his last revival service. He came back to the home where his pastor was hosting him, and that night he died. Lord, I want to be like that. I want to die in the saddle. He never, ever lost his heart for preaching and formation. But on his grave, and this picture is taken just on Sunday. I went over there myself and took it right here in Wilmore Cemetery. It says that he gave his life to entire sanctification. And I'll promise you what he meant by that was not simply the sanctification of your heart, but of your whole being. That's what entire means, including your mind. Because if you have that nuptial embrace, you have entered that sacred space where you have taught your heart to think and your mind to pray. Amen.